History, Lecture 75, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We're now beginning the period of Gaonim, which, depending on how you're counting, it can start as early as the 6th century. Uh, some put the date 589. These are just possibilities. Uh, maybe it starts as late as 700. Um, most would extend the period into the... Um, into the 11th century, some say it goes till 1038. But remember with these breakups, it's not like one day they woke up and they said, ah, now we're Rishonim. It's not like there was a seamless uh, uh, transition overnight. It was um, gradual and it's generally looked at retroactively. So, oh, well, that's the period generally is characterized by the Gaonim. Uh, the Gaonim, because um, the name of the Rosh Yeshiva in Bavel, and the great Yeshiva's Surah from Bedisa mainly, but also, also Matamachsia uh, and Machoza and others, um, were, uh, were called Gaonim. Gaon in Hebrew is sometimes translated as genius. Uh, great sage, great sages of this period were called Gaonim. Um, they were one of the two different figureheads. The other one's called the Reish Galusa, which we've heard of before and we're going to certainly uh, hear about today. Yeah? With, uh, with the previous generation, the Svarim? The, the previous generation are Savoraim. Yeah, Savoraim. Yeah, with the Svarim. Uh, it's not a generation. It's, right, right, it's, right. A, it's, a, it's, it's a time period. And the reason why we break it down, maybe it seems arbitrary, we're breaking it down to these Savoraim because the, the major accomplishment during that, that period was the Svara for the text, was the, was the editing and, and, and the uh, concrete, concrete, concrete writing down of the text of the Talmud. The Gonim already had the Talmud. And they'll take it to the next level. Something like that. That's the way it's understood. And clearly, this is, the, this is one of those um, uh, fuzzy areas of history where we, it's harder for us to pin down exact details. Although there are a number of significant things that take place, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll describe some of them today. One of them is that during the period of the Gaonim, there's this, we, we know a lot more about the Gaonim than we do about the Savarayim. Among other reasons, there's a great literature, hundreds of shutim, Survive Shutim, meaning Shaila the Tshuva, people, historically, throughout history, wrote rabbis their issues. Sometimes plain halacha, sometimes hashkafa, sometimes uh, a machshava, a certain like, concept, philosophy. They'll ask, they'll, they'll ask a Shaila and they'll get an answer. And in the Shaila answer, in addition to learning all the technical aspects, you also get a real flavor of how life was. So we, we do have a, a picture of their life to some degree from these Shutim. Um, one of the things we know about them is the Gaon was really authoritative. These were still times when people served in the position of Gadol Hador, and, and that meant something. And you deferred to them, and uh, they, you know, they, they, they hold, held sway, not just in Babel, but across the Jewish world. Yesterday we talked about the increasing um, communication between the various diasporas, and how all roads, in this case, led to Babel. Um, also, what we find is that it's not an easy period. We've never had an easy period. Certainly, the, this, this particular gullus that's lasted not quite 2,000 years has been um, characterized by lots of hard spots. It waxes and wanes. It's not consistently uh, gas chambers, but uh, doesn't have, it doesn't have too many bright spots either. The, um, and under, under adverse circumstances, one of the things that you can see about the Jewish people, something we can be proud of, is the deep moral sensibility 
of our people. I mean, people really cared about leading a good life, doing the right thing, and that's evident as you go through the tshuvas. You see what they're asking, what, what, what concerns them, what they're preoccupied with, and it's, uh, it, it, it's well, if this doesn't make you from, I don't know what does. I mean, look at, look at Klal Yisrael. What a great nation to be connected to, isn't it? How, how do you grow up in such a nation and not know? Well, the answer, obviously, is ignorance. People just don't know this about their family, about their heritage. But if you knew who you were connected to, and, you know, we talk about the greats and the famous, we talk about the Avos and Moshe and Aaron, and understandably, they are the Gidoli Olam. But look at, take a random slice of history like the period of the Gaonim and uh, feel inspired. Okay, let's, let's, let's tell some of the stories. It's not uniform, and they're, they're gonna, we're going to see some intrigue in other, other, uh, other parts, because we're also human beings. But um, we also know, and I mentioned this in Gemara class the other day, that the Jews are known for their integrity. They're known for their greatness, for their, for their striving for, for goodness. Um, so much so that the base dean, the Jewish base dean, was such a revered institution, non-Jews availed of themselves of this institution. Eli, are you with us? Non-Jews would actually go in, in recognizing that the Muslim courts were, were so frequently totally corrupt, subject to bakshish, subject to bribery and, and other such distortions, that they would often take their own cases, Muslim versus Muslim, for example, and adjudicate them in Jewish basting, uh, expecting reasonably that, they, that at least they would get a fair trial. The uh, major sources for this period, in addition to the Shutim, and to, to the Shilas and Shuvas of this, of this time, there are two. One I've been quoting already is the, is the great work of the Igeris of Rav Shrira Gaon, one of the last of the Gaonim. Uh, Rav Shrira Gaon lived between nine, he lived a, a long life, between 906 and 1006, and he keeps a record of these, of these uh, years. Um, the second book is called the Sefer Kabbalah, uh, Kabbalah, in this case, doesn't mean mysticism, but just the received tradition, what he understood of the book of heritage of his, of his, of his history, um, written by Rav Avram Ibn Daud. Notice the um, increasingly Arabic-sounding names, the strong influence of the Arabic cultures. Avram Ibn Daud in Hebrew? Daud? Daud? David. David Amelech. Uh, he's referred to as the Rivid. He's the first of three figures in history that are uh, called the Rivid. Uh, not the most famous either, but a significant figure. He, um, his major purpose, he writes this as an introduction in, the, in writing the Sefer Kabbalah, was a refutation to the Karaites. Uh, we'll be getting to the Karaites. Today we should be able to get into the Karaites. Um, and he's writing the Sefer Kabbalah to show them that we are that their way is not right, and that the Jew and that the Jewish way follows the rabbinic way. And he is keeping a, a record of that to show that there's an unbroken tradition going all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. His dates he he's, he comes after Rav Shurigo, and he lived between ten, uh, eleven ten, and eleven eighty, uh, and he would be killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem, he's hanged when the king of Toledo in the Spanish peninsula uh, demands that he rejects the, the principles of Torah, and of course he refuses, and they hang him. And he dies, Al-Kiddush Hashem, and he, together with uh, the, the many, many thousands of other great Jews who, uh, who uh, sanctified Hashem's name. Now, Eretz Yisrael is not an influence. That's not going to happen again until the 16th century. But that doesn't mean it's not playing a role, and we're going to hear it cropping up here and there. Uh, you know, there are, I was sitting with Elon at lunch, Elon likes collecting triviata in history, 
commendably so. And he was talking about different phenomena, different times the Jews had semi-autonomy in Eretz Israel, mostly in Tiberia, and then it was taken away again. And I, I, for the sake of, I mean, you can see how sprawling history is. For the sake of trying to get in history's greatest hits, which is kind of what we're doing here, uh, I, I selected out a lot of those stories. But here's something that is important about Eretz Israel, even though it's not um, influential. The Jews in Tiberia there are renowned in two fields in particular. They're experts in study of Tanakh, and they're experts in a, really a brand new field called Hebrew grammar. We've always had Lashon Kodesh, but it as a focus, as a study itself, had not really been a folk, had, had not really emerged. In fact, it, you, you, would, you find little bits and pieces of discussion about different um, letters and, um, and, and grammatical issues as they pertain towards darshaning psukim. That's true in, uh, the, in the Talmud, in the Midrashim. Uh, you do find some discussion, but as a focus itself to try to understand the inner workings of Lashon HaKodesh, which we know has already evolved, the Talmudic Hebrew is not the same exact uh, dialect that was spoken that, that, that of what we think of as Biblical Hebrew. So clearly the language with use had, had, had changed some, but uh, now, now it's, it's actually being studied and trying to, there's a science being made about, the Hebrew, about Hebrew grammar, um, which of course all dates back to the Torah. But which Torah and what Torah? And here's, here's one of the most significant facts about the Jews of Tiberia from the period of the Gaonim. I'm quoting the Rambam in um, Hilchos Sefer Torah. He says, the, there was a model Torah scroll. How do we know that the Torahs that we have in the Aaron Kodesh are in fact the Torahs? So we have it from the Rambam and other Rishonim, but the Rambam is really the one quoted here. He says the, um, the Torah, the five books together with the other 24 books altogether of the Tanakh, um, he said had been for many years in Jerusalem, but then was in Tiberia. And that became the model, what's sometimes referred to in English as the Masoretic text, Masoretic text from Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. The earliest records we actually have from these texts seem to be from Tiberia, some say as early as the year 750. Um, and Rambam, to finish what he said, he says, I set forth the rules for Hilchos Sefer Torah, all the details you need to know about a kosher Sefer Torah that we have in Egypt today, when he was writing in Egypt, Rambam lived at the end of his life. Um, he said, I rely on this scroll for my paskening, for understanding what a proper Torah is. He gives the background. He says that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote three orig 13, or 13 original Torah scrolls, one he gave to each of the, uh, the Shvatim, the, the tribes, and the last one he stored in the Aaron Abris, in the Holy uh, Ark, the Aaron Abris. And somehow over the years, there's some ambiguity in the way the Rambam describes it, somehow over the years that same, that 13th copy, and 13 is an important number in Tyra, the uh, 13th copy of the, uh, the 13th of original Sefer Tyra was the one that found its way to Yerushalayim and then Tiberia would be the model Torah that uh, Rambam and others would use to understand the Paskin, the various laws around Sefer Torah. Um, Tiberia then had the Torah. They also were the vehicle in, in, um, to understand the original understanding that we have, or the earliest understanding that we have, of course it dates back, everything dates back to our Sinai, but the understanding that we have of the Nekudos, the use of vowels per se, is Tiberia. 
Now that's not, I mean, as I said, all these date back to Harsinai and evidently in Chazal, in the Talmud, in the Midrashim, they clearly talked about vowel usage of vowels and so on. But we actually find them practically using them in uh, the communities of, of Tiberia during this period. They also are the earliest record we have for the use of cantillation, which means tame mikra, the way the um, guides to um, singing the psukim accordingly. The various uh, notes about the singing also comes from this, this area. So we associate to vary from this period with this whole area, uh, very holy area of preser preserving the Torah traditions. Meanwhile, off to the west, back in Europe, not a happy scene, as Europe is, as we described yesterday, is an oppressive, uh, dismal state, impoverished, uh, ravaged, anarchic, the, the, the various ruling powers don't stay in, uh, don't stay ruling for very long. And as much as the powers were corrupt, you'd rather have them than nobody, because no, there was nobody then to police the land, and then all of life was unstable. So in Spain, what we think of as Spain at least today was really a, uh, the Iberian Peninsula until modernity was like many places broken up into a lot of sub districts, but. Um, in 589, the ruler in, in, in a major area of the Iberian Peninsula was Rakared, and he converts to Catholicism. That usually is not a good thing. When they, when they convert, they usually become zealots. Uh, we don't like the religious zealots. They usually are not good for the Jews. And he decrees um, that Jews either have to convert or be expelled. Um, this is, by the way, make a note of this. Through our history, we're usually given one of three options. Convert, leave, or die. You choose. Okay, so that was the option given to the Jews. And indeed, those who wouldn't convert were expelled in the year, appropriately enough, 613 of the Common Era. In the year 700, there's a decree that any Jew caught keeping a mitzvah, any mitzvah, would be sold to slavery and his children would be converted. So living. What's that? So living. Yeah, yeah, not exactly a life for a Jew. This is uh, also in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain, that was the decree for Jews. The Arabs would cross the Straits of Gibraltar in 711. Ah. No, no, they had no late night uh, munchies, that was not, that was something else. Uh, they, on the year 711 of the Common Era, they crossed, you know, the Straits of Gibraltar, what connects Africa with the European continent, and they met no resistance, and so the Arab period, and this we talked about yesterday a little bit, the Arab period in Spain, where much of Spanish culture flourished, and that's where the music and the art and literature and all the rest took off, uh, would, would take off, and that was the beginning of what's sometimes referred to as the golden age of the Jews in Spain. Islam too, for sure, but, but you know, we're more Jew-centric about this, so the Jewish, the Jewish uh, period um, until the Catholics come back, and it's not, it's not, again, I'm trying not to keep it, not to make it too simplistic in my summary, it goes back and forth. There's Muslims, Catholics, Muslims, Catholics, but uh, as, as long as it was Muslim, it was usually better for the Jews. Um, up in the Frankish kingdom, what would later become France, in 629, Dogobert would expel the Jews. That's not the, first, not, not the last time such a thing is going to happen. Just get lost. Uh, 
we know that Jews would exist in various little pockets, little communities in and around Germany, Italy. Italy was a, was had been a tourist center and it would remain so, but not easy and not consistently with not much stability. And the center remains in Bavel. And the political figurehead is the Reish Galusa. The Reish Galusa, they kept very, very careful track, descends from David, David Amelech. And they know that that's the political figure right now, and that it's the future of Klal Yisrael, from this line will come the Mashiach. And of course, they have every intention of preparing to rebuild the base of Mikdash. That's, that's, their, that's their long-term ambition. Uh, when, if you remember, Marzutra was executed in the early, early part of the 6th century, uh, and then they smuggled his son, Marzutra III, to Tiveria, we actually, from that period, we don't know so much about the Reish Galusa other than it existed. The way, the, uh, the way it's expressed in the Seder Olam Zuta, it says those days were the days after the Talmud, the world stood without a king. There was somebody, there was some, they kept track of it, but it was a little bit tricky. And that sets the scene for the next story. The story is told about a certain Bustanai Bar Chachinai. Have you heard the name Bustanai Bar Chachinai? Okay, it's a very colorful story, um, but you're going to have to decide now which story you choose to believe is the correct story. Bustanai Bar Chachinai. We're talking about the Davidic line. This is the Jewish period in Bavel during the Gaonim. Um, and early on, during the, during the break between Byzantine rule and Muslim rule in the 7th century, uh, something happened. And I'm going to give you the messy version of history, which is my, well, my I, hope, I try to be intellectually honest about this, I don't really know. And you'll decide for yourself which version sounds best. But something like this happened. Um, much of the source for this is a history book by a, by a Yeri Shemaim written in the, in the uh, 18th century named the Seder Hadoros by Ravichil Halpern from Minsk. Um, the last Persian king was a fellow before the Muslims take over. Remember the Muslim conquest in the 630s? So the last Persian king was a fellow by the name of um, Chosoros who is a madman and a Sony Israel. He did not like our people. Did not like the Jews. Chosoros. And he decides he's going to wipe out Zerah based David, the seed of the Davidic line. He doesn't want a Messiah. What's that? No, no, this is the king, the last Persian king named Chosoros wants to wipe out the Davidic line. This is the story about Bustanai that I'm about to get to, and this is the background. Now, that's one version of the story. Remember, I, I, at the beginning of today, I mentioned several sources for this period. Rav Shrira Gaon, who certainly writes about this story, says he doesn't accept the legend. He says it contradicts what he knows. He says, I personally can trace my family, and I trust my father who trusts his father. We trace our roots back to um, pre-Bustanai branches of the Davidic line, and clearly he had not wiped out the entire line. So maybe it's the kind of thing you say when you're telling a good story. You want to say, well, everybody was. You want to include everybody when, in fact, that's not accurate. But here's the story in skeletal form. Uh, shortly before the decree, a young couple, the Reish Galusa is a young man who's married, and um, his wife becomes pregnant. And then the decree, Chosoros puts the decree in action, and the Reish Galusa is killed. And the widow uh, is now expecting. And then the king 
goes to sleep one night, and if this story starts to sound familiar, there are certain patterns to some of our <laughs> famous legends that, come, that, that we have. Uh, the king goes to sleep that night and has quite a dream. And in his dream, he is in a bustan, which is an orchard in Hebrew. He's in a bustan, and he's going around behaving quite bizarrely. He's uprooting trees all around the bustan, all around the orchard. And he, he successfully gets rid of all the trees. And just as he's about to strike the last uh, little root, suddenly, out of nowhere, an old man of reddish complexion, see if you can piece together the details, of uh, whose who's, who's red hair and red complexion suddenly grabs his axe from the king's hand and strikes the king. Oh, oh, good for you. David Amelech, obviously. You did, you did, you did. Who else famously has red hair? Asaph too, but okay. David Amelech is a better guess. He strikes the king, he almost kills the, the king, and then he lambasts him. He gives him harsh, harsh tochacha, rebuke, and the king wakes up in an old, in a cold sweat. How many stories have we had where some old king uh, has a nightmare and calls his, his advisors to advise them? Yeah, at least two. Three. At least. What do we have? We have Paro. Paro, Pijama, Ben Salila, certainly. We have uh, the story with Daniel. Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And then the last one was uh, Achashverosh. Achashverosh, also, also Balshitzar. Oh, too. And now this old king, Chosoros. Again, this is the stuff of legend, and it's questionable legend in the details, but the gist of this, something like this probably happened. So he has this dream, and he calls for all the kingdoms, somebody to come explain the dream, and indeed an old Talmud Chacham comes forward, and he hears the dream and explains all the details. Yes, indeed, that was David Amelech in your dream. Of course, the trees were all the descendants of David Amelech, and you were striking them down. Uh, and then he says, there is a young woman who is expecting the next in line, after you've wiped out the living seed of David, there's one that is yet to be born. And you have the opportunity of taking this baby and nurturing it and making sure, ensuring that it would be born and, 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 uh, and, and lead, lead a productive life. And the king, humbled by the experience, <laughs> and, the, and the old man says, and of course, that young woman is my daughter. Right, isn't that obvious? Okay, and so the king says, bring her here. I will take care of her. Uh, she comes to the king's palace, she gives birth, she names the boy after the dream, hence Bustanai. Bustan is the orchard, Bustanai. Um, and Bustanai grows to be an impressive Talmi Chacham and all-around Sadiq and Mensch. Um, actually, we have fragments. Um, there are different sources for this. There's a, um, uh, you know the, what the Cairo Geniza is? Yeah, a, a no, in an old shul, in the attic of an old shul, a gniza, meaning a repository of old texts in Cairo, uh, they found texts up to about a thousand years old, maybe more. They discovered it uh, in the end of the 19th century. Solomon Jekyll was involved in that uh, in, the, in the end of the 19th century. And, they, um, and among the many interesting historical finds, they found a... Uh, <clears throat> they found in the Cairo Geniza a fragment that says that the king, in the st it tells the story, it says the king was Caliph Omer. Was a Caliph, Omar, excuse me, Omar. Uh, but others said, no, no, uh, 
it was different that actually it was the Babylonian king that the Reish Galusa was there when the Muslim conquered, uh, conquered the land from Bavel in 637. So there's some confusion about who's the king and who's who and what's what. Um, what, what we do know is like this. Bustanai is apparently impressive and he's impressive to whichever king it is, whether it's the Byzantine king or the uh, Muslim king. Um, he stands still when the king is there as show, as show of kavod, honoring the king. He's so still that when a fly lands on his forehead, Bustanai doesn't, doesn't swat it away. He won't flinch. And the fly starts to sting him in the forehead. And the fly stings him so, so, uh, so, so um, aggressively that it draws blood. And the king watches Bustanai through this entire display and he sees this is not an ordinary person. And he's so impressed that he appoints Bustanai, the young man, as the new Reish Galusa of Klal Yisrael from the Davidic line. He gives him all the relevant powers to appoint the Rosh Yeshiva, the Gaonim in Surah and Pumbadis in Yeshiva. And um, this sets off a new tenure of, and pay attention to this because this introduction, we're going to see this in the period of the Gaonim, of Reish Galusa, who will descend, who, are the legitimate, uh, who has the legitimate title to the throne of Reish Galusa, depends on how you can trace your lineage to Bustanai, and the next part is where it gets complicated. Most of the different legends agree that um, Chosoros, the Persian king, passes on, Omar is the new Muslim ruler, and Chosoros has two daughters. And like in the ancient world, it's always good to marry other rulers' children. That way you, you uh, consolidate your power. And so um, Chosoros has two daughters, and um, Omar takes one of them as a wife, as it were, linking the two, the two kingdoms. The other daughter, he presents to Bustanai, <laughs> and then Bustanai said to accept it because who could refuse such an honor? Is anybody disturbed here? Married an Apparently. Uh, a princess, the daughter of Chosoros, a Persian princess. But she can marry, right? Presumably. This is where it gets a little bit shady. We're not quite sure. Let's be Malamitzchus and assume that this great Jew would have converted the woman. Uh, why would you marry her? Okay, that's what they did. Who could refuse such an honor was the explanation. But this is where it gets complicated. Bustanite, remember these are the days where men still have more than one wife. Bustanite has a Jewish wife as well. And they're kids from both wives. Now, the Jewish wives' kids have a greater legitimacy than the, con than the non-Jewish converts, whatever she is. Uh, she's more seen as like the concubine, the, the, the uh, interloper, the one who's not quite as legitimate. Much of the controversy, the controversy that we're going to see in the future generations will be based on the descendants of the Jewish wife will tease, will have slurs against the descendants of the Persian wife. Who's really the legitimate, oh, what was your great-grandmother again? Kind of, kind of lines that they would use towards one another. And we're not above the possible power plays and political struggles. Uh, that, that, that take place in history when people, when, when, when there was a position like Reish Kalusin State, you can understand how this might come up. Um, there would be other lead, leaders in the various diaspora communities in places like Mosul, Egypt, Damascus, but Bustanai's descendants would be, would use their legend as a way of maintaining their authority, and then you have another reason you understand why there's not one authoritative text to what actually happened. 
Was she legitimate? Was she not legitimate? Depends on who's telling the story and what their political uh, game was by, by, by proving this. Um, what we do know, independent of all the political intrigue, was that Binyamin Mitudela, we've mentioned several times, the 12th century traveler, 12th century traveler through the Middle East, um, one of the things he records is he saw Bustanai's grave in Pumbadisa. He said, I went to it, I davened by the cave of Bustanai, the grave of Bustanai in Pumbadisa. So, Lichora, it seems that he was a real figure and uh, one of consequence, and we'll hear more about this as, the, uh, as these times unfold. As I mentioned, some of you haven't been here, this period is going to unfold pretty quickly. Uh, in the next, tomorrow, tomorrow we're having, I'm not here, there's another, there's another, uh, uh, there's another schedule. Uh, for tomorrow afternoon, so Sunday we'll pick up, and by suddenly by Sunday or Monday we're going to suddenly find ourselves in the period of the Rishonim. Now there are different Gaonim, different Gaon we said was the Rosh Yeshiva, the Rosh Masivsa, in different Yeshivas. Sometimes there was competition who could be the Rosh Rosh Masivsa. Um, even there be there were periods where the division between the Gaon and the Rosh Galusa will be blurred. We'll see that Rav Saji Gaon, one of the most famous most prestigious of all the Gaonim, uh, himself was embroiled in political intrigue. Uh, sometimes even great men uh, are unable to uh, avoid it. Um, we know that Surim Pumbadisa sometimes moved around, sometimes when the actual cities were destroyed, the yeshiva would move and keep the name, kind of like Mir or Tells, or some of our own yeshivas that are named after the original European towns or cities, but when the yeshiva moves, the city name sticks. The, um, we know that there's a chronicler by the name of Noson ben Yitzchak Cohen from Bavel who is writing in the 10th century. When I say 10th century, you can picture the 900s, right? So he's writing the 10th century. He describes Surah and Pumbadisa and actually very, if anybody's interested, I have much more than what I'm going to share right now. It's really interesting. He goes into intricate detail, detail about what the yeshivas were like, what, the, what a daily life was like. He, one of the things to emerge from his description is that little has changed since the time of the Gemara, which is another point, those, those of you who walked in late, I, I made an observation in history. Um, we, are, we have every reason to be so proud to be Jewish. And you study our history, you study any random period, and you pick the period of the Gaonim, and you read a description like Nasrin ben Yitzchak's description, think, wow, those are stark Yidin. And we don't even know a lot of their names, but they were the ones, they were the bearers of the Messiah, of the tradition. We have, we have quite, a, quite a heritage uh, that we should, we should feel great about. Um, they have a Yarchi Kala, they have the rabbinic convention that they maintain. Um, there was a very clear and rigid seating hierarchy. You know, the top students sat in the front and all the way down and you knew your place. I'm sorry, can you trade with Rhinos? That's that's the way that's the way it went. Wait, how did, what did a new student do? Back back of the line until and the Gemara describes it too. Sometimes, for example, Rav Kahana, there's a Gemara in Baba Kama that, that, that describes this. Rav Kahana came into the came from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael and initially started out in the back row. But when he started, well, there's a more of a story. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing justice to the story, but I'm making the point. Uh, eventually, he would be moved forward as his questions that he asked in the shir reflected his godless entire. And they were so amazed. He said, you don't belong there. Come up come up and sit with us. Uh, elsewhere in Baba Metzia, we, we see a similar dynamic. Um, Rabbi Yudanossi and Rabbi Elazar were also boosted up 
when it became evident that their, their, their knowledge was immense, their wisdom was immense. So a similar system existed. Um, they learned a new Masechta every half, each half year. Um, it's clearly, when he writes about this, a very ide- idealized account. It may have been as good as he says. I mean, as far as if you were just to read Rav Nassim Ben Yitzchak, you would think, wow, we're perfect. Maybe it was their flaws, and he neglected to write about the flaws. Uh, he's being careful with Hilchos Lashon Hara. But you know, what does emerge is how, at the core, the Jews are committed to transmitting the Torah. And this is in a time period where we know less about. It's not yet the Rishonim, but that's what we're about. And on a certain level, not that much has changed. When we talk about the various struggles of the Torah community and the world today, uh, in Eretz Israel, are they going to serve in the army? Are they not going to serve in the army? But honestly, at core, what comes down is, is what are we going to do about Taira? How are we going to instill Taira in the next generation to be continuous parts of this, of this transmission that will take us to Mashiach? That was their concern then, and it remains that, that for us today. And sometime, I'm changing gears now, in the 7th or 8th century, again, the 600s, the 700s, I'm bouncing around a little bit, because uh, there are different <coughs> phenomena taking place simul- simultaneously. Sometime in the 7th or 8th century, a group of people rule the area that today we think of as the Ukraine, the Caucasus, the Caucasus, uh, Georgia, the Crimea. They've been the rulers there since the late 500s. Their names, they're called, their kingdom is called the Khazar Kingdom. Uh, Khazar means in, is Turkish for wanderer. They were nomads. And sometime during that period, they converted to Judaism. And it's a remarkable story. It's unclear. One of the questions we have is who converted. At least, definitely the king converted. And probably most of the upper aristocracy. Um, But it's possible that the entire nation converted too. Uh, We know that they converted. We know that also when they're defeated by the Mongols in the late 10th century, that's the late 900s, we don't hear about them again as the Khazars. So they disappear as a distinct people, which could mean that they died out, but more plausibly means their conversion held, and they simply integrated, and we are the Khazars, or maybe some of us descend from them. If that's true, maybe a lot of us descend from them. Um, So... Again, this is the stuff of legends. There are a couple very variations in the legends. One of the legends, what happened? How did they convert? One story that's told is that Jewish slaves owned by the Khazar king described Jewish hashkafa. They were talking about the what major ideas oh, of Torah. There you go. There you go. But this is this is a, a variation. This is not exactly the story we find in Kuzari. This version, uh, the Jewish slaves. Now there are, there are a few of them. Who, uh, who described Jewish ideas so appealingly that the chief of this tribe and his whole tribe converts. Okay, that's one version. A similar variation is the chief or the king has a dream that disturbs him. In the dream, he's smashing idols. Obviously, everybody in the ancient world were pagans, and he's going around, literally iconoclasm, smashing I- idols. He goes around smashing idols. He wakes up shaken. He, invite, he, invite, he invites representatives from from uh, various religions, a Greek philosopher. I mean, it is. it does sound like not only the Kuzari, but a setup for all those jokes that you hear. 
Uh, Christian, a Muslim, and a Greek, uh, a Greek philosopher, and a Jew walk into a room, uh, right? Kind of, kind of one of those. Uh, but actually, this is this is the legend that's told about it. Um, and he asks each of them to hear their version of, you know, hashkafa, of ideas, of, of basic ideas of Hashem and the world. And of course, he's he, he's drawn, he's attracted to the Jewish version. Rabbi Yehuda Halevi's version is even a variation on that last. On that last, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi who lives a few centuries later, his dates are 10, 1075 to 1141, he describes that the king is shaken because he's a very principled person. And he wakes from the dream, and in the dream he's informed that he is a decent person, but he's not putting his principles to action. He's not manifesting his ideals in his life. And he wakes up and he, does, he says, okay, but what do I do? I don't know, I need guidance, and he seeks guidance, and he only, he only defers finally to the Jew. And um, the rest of the Kuzari, based on the Khazar kingdom, is a dialogue, and I happen to be learning it this year with our Nishida every morning. Um, we're going through it. Anybody's welcome to join us, by the way. If you, if you didn't learn it at the beginning, it's not disqualifying. You can come in the middle and still pick up what he's doing. In any case, we, we meet from 9.20 to 9.30, not a long, not a long period, but we're doing what we can. The, uh, in, in, in the Kuzari, we describe the, ma- the, the, the there's a dialogue between the king and the Chaver, who's the rabbi, who describes the major tenets of Judaism. Now, we know that by the 9th century, the Khazars are talking about themselves as Jews. We have records, we have Shmuel Hanagid, one of the great figures of Spain, exchanging letters with them. Uh, the Rivid, the one we just mentioned, Ibrahim, Ibrahim Ibn Daud, uh, reports meeting rabbinical students who are Khazar uh, descendants in Toledo, in Spain, and they tell him that uh, the rest of the Khazars indeed today are all from the rabbinic faith. Um, why was it necessary to them to describe Judaism as the rabbinic faith, faith in these days? Anybody know this? So because of, there were people who were diverging from the... Namely? Do you know who they were? What they're called? Uh, I do. What do you do? You know? Karaites. Oh. The Karaites, who we're about, who we're just about to describe right now. Can yeah. Let's hold up. I'm just about to get into the whole discussion of the Karaites. Um, yeah. So. Uh, carrots. Not the carrots. That's different. Uh, no, Karaites. Now, um, the last point, and I alluded to this, Elon, in my email to you a couple days ago, but I didn't elaborate because I'm going to do that right now. Um, the last point that I would claim is significant about the Khazar story, I mean, among other things, it's an inspiring story. Jews, over the generations, heard about this whole nation, that, or at least a major part of a nation, that will convert and they'll think, wow, there must be something to us. And that's just simply, that's, that's, that's um, impressive and unusual, not expected. Why would you convert to a religion that's persecuted and without a state, without a, without a without, you know, that, are, that are despised and wandering? I mean, if they took the nation, now they have a state, right? No, but they didn't have a state. In other words, they disappeared. They were conquered by the Mongols, and there's no state, and they integrated among the Jews. So, um, so that, that, that in itself is, 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 is noteworthy. Um, but in addition, the Khazars play uh, uh, an unintended role in history. There is, there would develop in the 19th century an anti-Semitic theory called eugenics. Eugenics, which are racial studies from the late 19th century that claim that the Ashkenazi Jews of today are not descendants of the biblical Israelites. No, we're all descendants, they claim the theory eugenics claims of the Khazar kingdom. 
some impostors, some interlopers who aren't even Jewish. Guess who like guess who today appreciate this theory? No, 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 no. The Arab world. The Arab world. Because if we're not if we're just interlopers, if we're not really authentically even Jewish, we certainly have no claims to Eretz Israel. Significant point. Arafat would talk about eugenics, and when he hears it, Hamas talks about eugenics. It's it's it's, Wait, it's a tool. Like, it is. It is. It is. Eugenics is generally, but they'll talk about this particular sub theory of eugenics about the Jews not legitimately descending from the biblical Israelites and thereby having no connection with Klal Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, particularly. Uh, today, the theory is dismissed by academics. With the exception of, uh, in Arab countries, they still endorse it. But let's say the definitive study that's usually cited in this discussion, you need to go research this if you want, but in 1999, I'm sure Ilan, you uh, they studied the Y chromosomes of Ashkenazi, Roman, North African, Kurdish, Near Eastern, Yemenite, and Ethiopian Jews. That's a pretty wide array. And um, they compared them with 16 non-Jewish groups from similar geographic locations. And the study concludes, despite the long-term residence in the different countries, and despite the fact that the Jews were isolated from one another, most Jewish populations were not significantly different from one another at the genetic level. So that if the Ashkenazim descend, if they're supposed to descend from the Khazars, well, how do you explain the fact that we have genetically huge amounts in common with uh, Jews from all over the world, not necessarily from the same background? Uh, in halacha, none of this matters, you realize. Right? What's the difference? Let's say we do all descend from the Khazars. Okay, but if, they were, if it was legitimate conversion as it was, that would have no, no practical difference for us. Um, further... You know, that we have no need to refute the, the, the claims. It's a political kind of a claim, but an inter interesting one and something you should be aware of. Um, before I get to the Karaites, I'm going to talk about another phenomenon taking place. Anybody here with Persian roots? Actually, have some good Persian students in Yeshiva. Okay, no, no Persians right now. Um, if you notice, I'm not going to have a lot to say about the Persian Jewish community. It's not because it's not an important community. Uh, some of the great Jews today that I know are, are, are Persian. But we'll see, Persia, Persia is east of Bavel and will not fall off the map, but something happens to the Persian Jewish community uh, that makes them fringe. And it happens in the form of a person. His name is Abu Isa. If that's not good enough for you, well, how's Yitzchak ben Yaakov el Istafahani? Uh, who was around, his dates are, are debated when he was around, some say 685 to 705, others say he was influential between 744 and 750, sometime in the 7th, 8th centuries. And who is Abu Isa? He's the first false messiah since Yoshka, for whom we have a definitive record. Now to be more accurate, um, he's the first founder of a Jewish sect since the Second Temple was destroyed. Remember, the Talmudic period is without sectarians. That doesn't mean everybody was from, but the shul they didn't go to was orthodox, and the rabbis they knew were teaching the, Jew, the true J Jewish view. Abu Isa invented a new brand of Judaism. Um, well, they call themselves Jews. 
that's what makes it a sect. <laughs> but it was the Jews under Abu Isa. He made minor changes to halacha. I mean, no changes, minor as far as we're concerned, but relatively speaking, they kept a lot of mitzvos. He does a few things that are odd. He forbids d- divorce. Okay, that's not something we do. Sometimes people have to get divorced. He forbids uh, consuming wine and drink, uh, uh, consuming wine or meat. He has a few points that are. It does, it does, and it's going to sound more Christian because he calls. Yeah. No, no, wine, comma, and he also forbids meat. Yeah, heavy duty. He was, he was, he was an ascete. He was, he was somebody who who tried to avoid this worldly pleasures. He. Um, actually doesn't claim to be Mashiach. He, cons- he considers himself a harbinger of the Messiah, but okay, that's close enough. Enough to get people's hopes up and to found its own, his own sect after him. Um, he calls Yoshka, Jesus, and Mohammed true prophets to their respective peoples. He's trying to ingratiate himself with the Christians and with the Muslims. That's not good. That's a problem for us. We don't ingratiate ourselves with the non-Jews. Rambam had it right. He said, Yashka, Muhammad, these were not role models. These were not true prophets. They were, they were charlatans. Um, clearly, he's influenced by rising Shiite radicalism. The Shiites are dominant like they are today in Iran. They're dominant in the area of Persia. Uh, clearly, that was an influence. And the story is somewhat parallel. Just like Muhammad was an illiterate businessman who then had an encounter with Allah and, and brings his prophecies, becomes prolific, and comes back. So Abu Isa has, has modest origins. He was an illiterate person who rose up and became a, a, a herald of the Messianic era. So there's this, clearly some kind of a parallel. Rambam writes in the Geras Teman, he, said, he writes about Abu Isa that he led 10,000 Jews. That's how influential he was. Even after he died in battle, the Rambam says, the followers continued to, uh, to, to, to um, be part of his group at their own peril. They were ostracized as a result. By Jews or by By everybody. Uh, and, the, and the end result was Torah observance becomes generally weak in the Persian area because of Abu Isa. Um, that, together with the fact that they're increasingly isolated, that doesn't go well, um, they're removed from the Torah center. And the Torah center doesn't want to have much to do with them because of their strange ideas and ways. Um, and, and that becomes a legacy. And there'll be exceptions. I don't want to paint there either an overly simplistic picture. There would be Talmud Echochamim, although generally in Persia, uh, they would have, their, their figurehead was, was more, was not a Talmud Chacham per se. He was the Chacham Bashi. But he was, he was, his, his function was more um, of a political figurehead. Uh, there is a pattern that was broken in the Persian community. Persian community uh, today. Those the, the, the many of them got out uh, when the Shah rose in 1979. Um, but one finds in the Persian community today, um, in addition to a disproportionate amount of uh, wealth uh, in various places in Great Neck, in Westwood, uh, Los Angeles, and other other areas in the world, one finds uh, one finds an immense um, emuna. One of my one of my favorite students from past years. We, Derek, this year not so much, but usually have some great guys who are who, who are Persian. So one of my one of my favorite students always described his mother as a Tehillim Jew. She, he said she could she could say Tehillim by the coastal for five hours straight. Immense imuna, but never with the strong tradition of learning full time as a thing to do. And that was always a pattern that we had too in Derek that the Persian uh, guys. Um, when they wanted to come back to the base, often met 
huge resistance from their families who just didn't understand what that meant. What do you mean, Shana base? You're coming back to make, make, make money. That's what we do. And Torah, Kolokolo, the Torah, and the rabbis, but... And, uh, okay. So, and there are exceptions to this. And I know that in Ner Yisrael, they managed to do phenomenally well. Several of the young men, idealistic, came and learned and broke that mold. And, and today there are increasingly uh, uh, big, big Tamanich Chachamim, full-time learners from the Persian community, too. But... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going against the grain. And I'm, ta- I'm talking in broad... Generalizations, but there's there are some truths truth, truths to these statements. Um, sometime around this period, sometime in the 700s and 800s, the Karaites emerge. It's during the Abbasid Caliphate. The Abbasids, remember, are the rulers in Baghdad, and their leader was a fellow by the name of Anan ben David. Anan ben David, whose dates are given as he lives between 715 and 795. Some put it later. You decide what sounds right. Karaite, because the Karaites are known for rejecting the mikra, excuse me, rejecting the rabbis and endorsing only mikra. Remember the Rashi and Makos, mikra, psukim, the psukim. They say we are people of the written Torah, the kra, and not of the rabbinic oral tradition. We're going there. Excellent question. Why is this different than the Sadducees? Let me tell you the technical story behind them, and then we'll get to this stukim, and you'll enjoy this. This is there. They are an interesting tangent, and, and Akiva, you threw out the question: Can you go into a Karai shul today? There is one, and I go there too, and I have what to say about it. I like to guide it. I like to go to their center in Eretz Israel in Ramla and take Jews there and uh, and learn by comparative studies about them and us and all the rest of it. It's really interesting. Do I bash? Only before we get there and after we leave, but not while we're there. It wouldn't be polite. Wait, Rabbi, when I was there, the rabbi, the the rabbi wanted to give you a tour. So when you're, he lets you give tours then? No. Tour? Oh, no, they wanted to give, they want to give the tour. Right. I don't I mind that. I don't mind that. I'm okay with that as long as, because I'm bringing the group on the bus. I give the preamble. On the bus afterwards, I give the... <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's hold on. Let me tell you about the Karaites. This is you'll you'll you will find if you're not familiar, you will find this of interest. In about the year 760, and again, this is approximate. We're still not yet at the time of we can we can say the dates with a little more clarity. Anan ben David himself um, descends from the house of David and vies for the position of you guessed it, Reish Galusa. Anan descends from the Jewish wife of Bustanai. And he, that's a badge of honor that he wears. I'm not one of those Persian princess descendants. You remember the story of Bustanai that we said earlier? And um, he didn't get the job. See, he failed to pay the necessary bakshish, which is an Arabic word you should know. It means bribery. And it was the way things worked in the Muslim world then and today. Uh, you pay the necessary bribery to the powers that be. And that's the way that sometimes the Jewish institutions also became influenced in the negative and, and he didn't get the job because of it. Um, later on, the position of, of Gaon, the Rosh Hashiva position, opened up. It wasn't clear. Uh, some say this was in Surah. Others say it was in Matamachsia. This time, Anand ben David has learned from his mistakes, and he goes to the powers that be, and he tries to pay them off. But that's a terrible mistake, because the Rosh Hashiva is not a job you pay off. 
That's pure idealism. We're talking about our Talmud Chacham, our Gadol, and you want to bribe your way into power. One sure thing, you will not get power. They, they will reject you. They, they only want the purest uh, tzaddik in such a position. Anan ben David, doubly rejected now, goes out and says, you won't let me be my own leader, I'll make my own religion. Well, he doesn't quite say it like that, but that's the impression that you get. He declares himself his own Reish Galusa, which is against the Muslim laws. You're not allowed to go out and declare yourself anything. The fact that there's a Reish Galusa position, the fact that there's a Gaon, was accepted within the Muslim legal system. The Jews couldn't just hang out a shingle and say, you know, I'm going into business myself. That didn't work. He had, had, had to play the, by the protocol, and he declared himself Reish Galusa, and the Caliph has him thrown into prison for insubordination. But he's a smooth talker, and he manages to convince the Caliph that, no, no, it's not that I'm Reish Galusa of the Jewish people. See, I, I'm a new faction. I'm not even a sect of Jews anymore, although that's, that's debatable. Some would say it's a sect, some would say it's a new religion altogether. I'm starting a new religious group, and eventually he smooth talks his way into getting freed from prison. And now he's free, and he's incredibly antagonistic of, uh, of, of the rabbis who didn't give him either job. And um, he goes out brazenly uh, to fulfill his word to the caliph. He invents his own new religion, and the religion is one dedicated to what he claims is the pursuit of truth in Torah, but not those nasty rabbis who distort and mess everything up. Again, it's a religion of the word, but not the tradition. Now, um, his brother was Hananiah, who actually got the job of Reish Galusa, and they're the last descendants from Busanai's Jewish wife that we know of. From this point on, and it's possible that because of Anan ben David, he tainted his whole family's reputation, so nobody even wants to have a Reish Galusa who comes from this Jewish wife. They think, oh, that's Kara, I, I don't want anything to do with that. So that from this point on, the position of Reish Galusa will be held by the descendants of the Persian wife. Okay? And again, assuming she converted, that's okay. But um, the position, they're eventually accepted. Uh, it's a point of, 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 of conflict. Um, we know there's another one of the Gaonim. Uh, uh, one descendant from the Jewish wife was named Rav Netronai ben Chavivai. And um, he lost, he didn't get the office, probably because of his association with the Karaites. And he immigrates to Spain. And in Spain, Rav Netr, the story about Rav Netronai ben Chavivai is he writes an entire Talmud from memory. Some say he's the foundation of the Spanish Jewish community. Rav Shriragaon brings that story. Now, um, you're right. The Karaites sound an awful lot like the Tzdukim, and ideologically, they're allies. But the Tzdukim died out many years before. It's not the same people ethnically or genetically. They're long gone for centuries. We lost them when the temple was destroyed. Yeah. So that's that's. So you're right. It's a similar concept. And what, what's definitely true is, on the surface, <laughs> there you know it's all an ideological debate. But you know it's all about power. I remember the Tsukim were all about power, and that's how they used their their their, their goal was to ingratiate themselves with the Greeks, with the Romans, and, and take the power. That much the Karaites have in power. At least Anand ben David has that in power. Um, really, the best way to understand Karaism is it's a resurgence of the pop. Remember this idea? Very important idea the popular idea of building a religion around a lifestyle. 
really the Karaites wanted an easy life and they claimed the whole ideology to support it. It's not the first time that'll happen. Remember that happened in the Greeks and it's certainly not the last time it's going to happen. Uh, we'll find this similar phenomenon with reform, conservative. They start with their bottom line, the way they want to live their lives and they work backwards to develop a theology and a, and a way of life that will justify it. They claim, and when you go and you hear them, I think this is helpful because it's, you know, you understand where you're coming from in contrast. They claim to read the simplest reading of the text of the Torah. But there is no such thing. You realize that. What's the simple version of the text? So much of the text is ambiguous. The Pashup Shah, but that's ambiguous. Who's to say what's Pashup Shah? It's debatable. Pasuk after Pasuk, we could, we could say maybe this, maybe that. And so it, you need, you cannot have a religion without some kind of oral tradition. And what they'll wind up doing, we're going to see in different ways, and I'm going I'm to illustrate this, um, is developing their own kind of oral tradition that they deny is really an oral tradition, but you can't have it any other way. When you reject Chazal, which is, which is so rigorously maintained, and such an intellectual honesty in trying to show the origins of every minale, every idea in, in Torah is defended and justified, and that's what the Talmud's doing. The Karaites are kind of make it up as you go along, developing their own oral tradition. Um, some of the results come out to our eyes as bizarre. I'll give you a few examples. They say they take the Tanakh literally, so they'll say, ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye, and they'll pop out the guy's eye. Now, to be fair, if you learn the sugi in the beginning of the eighth parak of Baba Kama, parak of Hovel, there is a havamin in the Gemara that the way we understand ayin tachzayin and eye for an eye is literal. But in the end, we reject that, and it's discussed there very, very carefully that it's monetary. Somebody knocks out another person's eye, he repays the monetary value of the eye. Eye for an eye is just needs that one line. Right, exactly, exactly. An eye for an eye. In Baba Kama, it's debated. It's based on Sunni. Okay. So don't they follow? They wouldn't follow all the Lushmi's, you know? No. So that's rabbinic. Halacha Moshmi Sinai is rabbinic idea. That's what they would claim. They would reject any such notion. Even though, I'm about to, we're going to see, um, I have till five of, and it'd be nice to finish the unit I have in Karaites. Um, give me time to do this, unless the question's burning. If, you, if you'll, you'll use your judgment. Well, yeah, uh, but, but is it a Christian value, though? Uh, and I put on leaves. Uh, I thought that's what uh, so you did on uh, some of the map. Christians, but the Jews say we don't take vengeance. Right, but I mean that whole idea that it's a physical. Uh, hey, right, that's also Christian. So that's that's um, right. We they execute through skila. They throw stones at people. We don't do that. It's never happened. The Gemara testifies that nobody was ever executed. By, uh, they, some were executed when they, they died when they were thrown off the roof and the stone was thrown on them. But having stones thrown at them, that was a Karaite ph uh, phenomenon. It is. But I'm just saying, pointing out that, that the Gemara says that never practically ever happened. No one ever survived to that extent. Right. Correct. Um, since the, the temple was destroyed, they say there's no authority to enact punishments and accept whatever law of the land, whatever local governments say. Um, on Shabbos, they understand the Pasuk says, Lo ish mimkomo, a man can't leave his place, and they take that, what they understand to be literal, they try as best they can not to go out on Shabbos. They make an exception to go out what's necessary when they go to synagogue to pray. 
that's what they, and I would claim, arbitrarily decide that they can go out for. Is that the necessary, is that the written word? Is that their own tradition? Um, ideally, lo yitzeh koma, man doesn't go out from his place. Um, they don't get up from their chairs on Shabbos. The real from don't go up from the chairs. They also avoid intimacy on Shabbos because Shabbos, they claim, needs purity. They need to become impure when, you're, when you cohabit. Isn't that the We that's that's the rabbinic Jew. Now you're going to find increasingly, like we saw before, Jews call themselves rabbinic Jews, which just means normal Jews, because the rabbis are the ones who give us the Torah. Without without Rashi, do you understand what's going on in in, in Chumash? Rashi is Chazal's greatest hits. Rashi is telling us how to make sense of it. That's the Torah. That's why we're so emphatic when we say Moshe Rabbeinu received two Torahs in our Sinai. The written Torah, the oral Torah. And they're both of a set. Without one, you don't have the other. It's like the Tenor Orthodox Jew today, right? They're just, we're just Jews. Jews. Just Jews. The old style. When it says by Shabbos, Don't burn fire in all of your dwelling places. The, the Karaites say, Don't have fire. Sit in the dark. No lights, no warm food. Uh, the very, very stark Karaites, there are very few of those left in the world today, um, they unplug their electronic uh, appliances, no refrigerators, uh, the electric breakers. Um, they keep a self-powered fluorescent light on before Shabbat, which is also arbitrary. Who said that's okay? No, no one says no light. So what are you using a fluorescent light for? But you can't ask kashas on them. Because there's no, like, a shakla vitari, there's no rabbinic tradition, per se. Um, in fact, um, they sit in the dark, they eat cold food. It is, they, they influence practical halakha for us. The Mishnah Brura cites one of the great Rishonim, the Bala Ma'or, who says that we have a minag dafka to eat chamin on Shabbos, cholent, hot food on Shabbos. And if you don't eat hot food on Shabbos, you're suspicious. And, and, the, and, and the Mishnah brings, brings down the Bala Ma'or. We should investigate the person. They may secretly be a Karaite. You better eat cholent on Shabbos and lots of it. No, they didn't say that quantity. I don't know, but there's an it is actual there's an actual Indian derabanan to eat hot food on Shabbos in reaction to the Karaites to show that you're not one of those Karaites. Um, how do they achieve tahara? How do they how do you become pure? You don't need a mikvah; just wash yourself. Um, how do you find a red heifer, a paraduma? Any red cow will do. Any red cow. This, the next point they have in common with the Stukim of old, they count the Omer on the Sunday after Pesach, whatever Sunday it is, uh, and Shuas always falls seven weeks later, always on a different date, but always on Sunday. They go to the Shuas about Yeah, they do. I'm going to get to that. Um, early on, they rejected the Jewish calendar. Uh, they claim to date the new month by sight of the new moon still, but that was just anybody's sight of the new moon, so they're not all using the same uniform calendar. You might have seen the moon yesterday, and I saw it today. So they don't have a—they don't have a system. They don't have rabbis. They don't have authority. Very confusing. Eventually, because it so became so confusing, they came around to embracing the rabbinic calendar. They reject Purim and Hanukkah because those are rabbinic, but they sell—they they observe Tisha B'Av, the Chorban, which is rabbinic. So they pick and choose. Not nothing consistent here. They um, their prayer is mostly psukim. As you said, they pray barefoot, barefoot like, it, like it indicates Charlotte, like Moshe Rabbeinu took off his, his shoes in the parish a few weeks ago. They lie down fully prostrated in davening. Their Torah is the same Torah from this period, from the Masoretic text we described earlier today. Um, 
the totafos, the mezuzos that you that you put between your eyes, between in, in the um, in, on your doorposts, are symbolic. Don't confuse this with the care, with the kutim. The kutim have a different kind of mezuzah, a different kind of tefillin. For them, there it's it's not a concrete set of tefillin. It's an idea. Between your eyes means you should think in Torah. On your arm means you should act in Torah. On the doorpost of your house means in your houses you should live by Torah. But not actual things. Those are rabbinic ideas. I heard uh, a Catholic try to... Uh, Let me continue. Let me continue. Um, some of them still put up the Ten Commandments symbolically. Um, you'll see Karaites today wearing kippahs. That's rabbinic. But they wear them anyway. Um, tzitzit can be made of any blue color that you feel like. Uh, Ma'akeh, which is, a, which is a, a, um, a fence around the roof of the house, is the house itself. There are no laws regulating shechita. Shechting animals... Um, there are only father-son traditions, but they say those aren't oral laws. Just father-son traditions, which isn't oral, but it's oral. Basa um, Bechalav is only, the prohibition is cooking milk, cooking meat and milk, but you can eat it. You can have a cheeseburger. Yeah. Um, Quick. Is, is it important? Because I... I uh, yeah, they're the same Torah as us, like the Torah from back then. Corresponds to I just said so. That's the Masoretic Torah that we have to. Yes, that much is true. The the Kutim have a different Torah. Their, their Torah is in in Ksav Ivri, but that was an earlier discussion we had. Also, uh, on the literal on the literal text, they're allowed. They should be allowed to cook milk and meat together. Cooking, it says Lot Hamashel Gedib Chalevi Mo. Don't cook a. Uh, oh, just the cap. If you really want to be literal, good. But I'm, my point, my, you hear my argument, which isn't my argument. It's all. It's many, many centuries of rabbis arguing, refuting them. It's whatever. It's subjective. These are not absolute things. So whatever, whenever you're going to interpret the law, it's going to be it's going to be uh, random um, and relativistic. <laughs> they affirm, as we said, some of the Durabanan ideas. Somehow they say that the canonized 24 books of the Bible are the Bible. But who said? The rabbis. Oh, no, but I don't hold the rabbis. But that idea they hold by. Uh, it's a rabbinic idea. It's not explicit, at least in the Torah. Hashkacha Pratis, divine providence. Nor is uh, the coming of the Mashiach uh, explicitly in the Tanakh. Nor is um, the Isra saying Hashem's name. But the Karaites hold by all of these principles. Um, they're, as individuals, in- encouraged to interpret... Is the Isra saying Hashem's name, the third commandment? No. That's interpreted by the rabbis. All this is not to take it in vain. But what does that mean? The, um, they encourage individuals to interpret for themselves, to paskin for themselves. When do you eat on Yom Kippur? You decide. Isn't that also with Yom No. Kind of? No. There, there, are, there, are, there are principles. There is, as we see, a, an inevitable relativism. You know, you decide and you decide and you decide. There's not one uniform religion. Um, in response, the rabbis, the rabbis were very, very strong. Rambam writes, they, we know that denying the oral Torah is a kind of kfira heresy. By the Rambam's time, though, most Karaites <coughs> in the world by the 12th century were Tinok Shinishba. They were ignorant, ignorant. They didn't really know much of anything. They were just doing what they'd learned to do. They weren't ideologues, per se. They weren't like Anand Ben David. Um, the, Ka- the Cairo Geniza shows that um, by that point, uh, Karaites were marrying into normative Jew- rabbinic Jewish families. Um, there's, that's an issue and I'm going to just say this I'm not done with the topic but let me say a couple more points and we'll have to pick up with a few details important details on a Sunday the, um, it's a machlokis about that issue here's where it gets complicated and I've described this with Ethiopian Jews but it's relevant for the Karaites as well 
here you're talking about an entire community of people. Some, some say they numbered in the millions, maybe as many as 40% 40, 40 of the Jews. They had their own autonomous institutions. Some of them got high positions in the Muslim world. Um, sometime between 900 and 1100 was their golden age. They were such a threat to normative Judaism. Rav Sajikaon, the Rambam, and others uh, wrote vehemently against them. They saw them as the, as the enemy. Today, they number somewhere in the tens of thousands, and they're assimilating and, and, and an endangered species. They're not a threat to, to Jews. They claim that they're up to 50,000, but that's an inflate, that seems to be an inflated number. Um, the problem is like this. When you have a large community like this existing on Torah law, but not rabbinic law, century after century, what's going to happen inevitably is they're going to get married. The marriages are binding. It's very easy to get married. You get married and the marriage takes effect. Uh, remember we talked about this, didn't we? With the Cracker Jack wedding, the Ramosha says, give the, the guy was joking at a party and Ramosha says, give the girl a divorce. Give her, give her a, 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 a get, a bill of divorce. Not so straightforward. Very easy to get married. Divorce only happens with a get the Ravana. And you only know how to do it if you have Chazal. Therefore, some of them were getting divorced, some of those women were getting remarried, and some of those kids then were mamzeri. Yeah? You have an entire community like this, century after century, the entire community has a cheskas, sofik, mamzer. We don't know who's a mamzer and who's not after so many centuries. Well, that's a machlokis. Uh, the Ramah says, kulam sofik mamzerim. And therefore, they're in the worst possible category. They can't marry a Jew because they might be a mamzer. They can't marry one another, according to halacha, because one of them might be a mamzer and one of them might be Israel. It's, it's, it, there doesn't seem to be an easy solution. That's the position of most Ashkenazi poskim since the Ramah and the Shulchan Aruch. Around the time of the Ramah was the Red Baz, who poskins leniently on condition that they accepted Chazal and the opinion of the rabbis. If they showed uh, subservience to rabbinic law, then they could be re reintegrated. And that's indeed the position of many of the Sephardi poskim, the chief rabbinate of Israel, Rav Avad Yosef, and, and many others, except that, they, uh, that they're not Suffolk Mamzerim, they, uh, assuming that they accept Chazal, they allow intermarriage, and the Ashkenazim are more machmir. Which is complicated, but that's a that's an issue today. Go ahead. Would they be able to marry a convert? Yes, Southern marry the converts are, are, are in good good position shidduch wise. They can marry lots of people. Fair enough, but then their kids and so on. A little complicated. Um, I have I, what I what I the real juice of the story, but I'm already five minutes over time. My my apologies. Is um, I want to tell you some of the great refutations of Karaism over the ages from the Kafir of Farah, from the Kuzari, and a few others, uh, and then on um, oh, good stuff coming coming up on uh, on, on Sunday uh, we're going to talk about the uh, great Gaonim and and some of the early works of Halach and Ashkafa uh, and 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 accounting of the mitzvahs and otherwise. So good stuff around the corner.